Switching and saving with GEICO is easy, so you're free to ponder life's big questions. Like if a person can get discombobulated, does that mean the rest of the time they're just like, combobulated? Are we humans always in a state of combobulation? Until of course something dramatic happens, and we are discombobulated for a while. Then we go back to being combobulated. Yeah, that's probably how that works. Switch and save with GEICO. It's easier than you think. I think I was afraid of using my voice because I was afraid to accept that I had lung cancer. But if we want to have the best care, we need to talk. We need to ask. And we need to be assertive. Speaking up doesn't need to be daunting. Consider gathering additional information from credible patient organizations, preparing questions you want to ask your doctor, taking notes at your next appointment, and asking about biomarker testing. Steps like these can potentially lead to care that is more focused on your needs. We have to be assertive, even though it's hard when you are fighting for your life. Visit bit.ly slash soundup for lung cancer for links to resources and to learn more about SoundUp, a patient-inspired, community-led campaign supported by Novartis to empower people affected by lung cancer. Here we are. We are here. We are ready to go. It is the day of all days. We have been so anxious for this. For a month, we've been playing this panel of what can you expect from cannabis legalization federally in 2022, led by the one, the only, the infamous, the most amazing cannabis reporter on the planet, Javier Jase. What's up? Here it is, representing Benzinga. Do you have Benzinga swag? I want to know if the audience, anyone in the audience, has Benzinga swag. If you don't, you should. I think you can get it right off our YouTube channel. We're efficient. You know, we like to make this as easy as possible for our our fans, uh, the people who don't know us. If you decide you like us, grab a shirt, come say hi. Um, so today, y'all, as I mentioned, this is a panel that Javier and I have been putting together. Javier uh, it has really developed a spectacular. You did all the work here. Well, well don't I, don't be invites on the on the logistics side, but your brain is what we're taking advantage of here. But your brain, along with three other ginormous, amazing brains with vast networks in this space, uh, we have an amazing panel. I'm going to let you introduce them shortly. I just want to mm-hmm. say, y'all, uh, Benzinga covers cannabis daily. Um, Cannabis Daily is also a podcast, but we have this this show twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays at four. Javier, I think your team has thirty plus articles a day on forty fifty, increasing every day. Yeah, so we if you need if you are in need of cannabis news and you don't follow benzinga.com slash cannabis, um, I, I think you're missing missing the boat. But that being said, I'm out of here. Drop your questions, drop your comments in the chat as they come up. Uh, we may be able to get to some of them, Javier. I'll leave that up to you, but I'll be back at the end with some thoughts on this. Um, I'm pumped. With that, Javier, I'm going to turn it over to you. Fantastic. Yeah. Today, we're, we're talking about you know legislation, cannabis bills, cannabis law, what they mean. We have three fantastic guests. We have Tom Zuber, Brady Cobb, and Sarah Chase. Aaron, let's bring them on. Hello, everyone. How are you doing? Good. How are you? 
Fantastic, fantastic. Let's get this started. Um, let's do a, a, a brief intro, 30 seconds each. Let's start with Sarah. Sarah, please tell us a little bit about you and your company. Your yeah, so I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm lacking my Benzinga swag too, by the way. So just, you know, I'm, I'm going to go we'll on. We'll send you. <laughs> um, I'm Sarah Chase. I'm the executive director for the Council for Federal Cannabis Regulation. Um, we are a fairly new uh, group to the industry, um, and we work specifically with the federal agencies, um, the FDA in particular, um, the White House. Uh, and our main objective, really, the, the reason we're here um, is to work to mainstream cannabis by educating st key stakeholder groups um, and the federal agencies and to serve really as a um, a good conduit for scientific research, for education, and the best practices to really enable this industry to maximize its full potential. Uh, and we, we do that um, by working through sort of the process of regulatory and research science. And we're a nonprofit based here in Washington, D.C. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Tom, what about you? Sure. Good to see you, Javier. It's always great to be here with Benzinga and Elliot. Uh, very grateful for our relationship. I'm Tom Zuber. I'm the managing partner of Zuber Lawler. Uh, we have, we're a law firm that's been in the cannabis space for over 16 years. And under God, we have seven offices across the United States. And we represent a, a large number of the leading cannabis companies in the world in respect of their higher stakes matters relating to deals, IP, FDA, and cannabis regulatory work and lots of litigation uh, and increasingly international work across sovereign borders. Uh, so it's a great delight to be here and it's an exciting topic. Thank you. Very, 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 very cool. Brady, your turn. You're muted, though. Let me see if I, I can personally unmute you. Yes. Yep, Brady here. Thank you for having me, as always. It's, uh, I'm a big fan of your guys' show. It's exciting to be on here with two other killer panelists in the space. So uh, I'm Brady Cobb. I've been in the cannabis industry now for, geez, it feels like 50 years, but it's been since kind of the early part of uh, 2013. Um, started my time up in Canada, uh, working with some folks up there, and also as well out in Colorado and California. Um, I'm an attorney by practice, by trade. Uh, my father, you know, this this, this industry is in my blood. My father was one of the largest smugglers of, of uh, cannabis between 1977 and 1983 <laughs> in the history of the Justice Department. So it's a little bit in my blood. But instead of running shrimp boats, I decided to go to law school and work to start to change the laws. Um, I have focused a lot of my time on, on Washington, D.C. I began lobbying up there with the assistance of Haley Barber and his group, BGR, back in the early part of 2015. Um, I'm again, a lawyer and a lobbyist by trade, and that's, you know, the federal policy reform and the state level policy reform is arguably our single biggest catalyst or uh, detriment. So it's something that is under focused when I started that no one, there wasn't a lot of folks that were working together on it. So we began the process, but I've also I've served as an operator. I've, I've been the CEO of a public investments company where we deployed over 200 million into cannabis, as well as recently built out one of the companies I invested in. We spun it out and I, I took it out on my own and uh, called Bluma Wellness One Plant. We we scaled from zero employees to close to 400 in Florida in 18 months and opened eight stores and sold to Cresco last uh, April of 2021 and getting back in the game here in short order as well. But really excited to be on here today to talk about federal legislation and kind of the state-by-state -state legislation and what we can expect for uh, federal policy reform. Thanks again for having me. Thank you. Very, very impressive stuff as well. So let's get right into it, right? We know there is, well, some people know, others might not. So, you know, let's let's get, you know, start at the beginning, right? We have a bunch of different bills out there seeking to 
change the status of cannabis uh, federally in one way or another, right? There's uh, the SAFE Act and the HOPE Act and the CAOA and the State Reform Act, you know, the, the one um, put forward by Representative Mace. Um, so can you tell us a little bit, share a little bit about what, what each one of these different bills uh, implies and, and, you know, how it would impact the industry? I, sure, so I can I can get us started with that. I mean, there's there's it's confusing because there's such a plethora of acronyms out there, and it's hard to keep track. <laughs> and a new one seems to arrive every quarter, uh, but there are a few key ones that we've been focused on. I think the Safe Act has been with us since I don't know Clinton was president. It feels like it anyway. Uh, we've been talking about banking reform <laughs> for I don't know. It seems like longer than I've been in cannabis. Um, and uh, for some reason, it's never come around. It does seem like there's some momentum to do that. And the SAFE Act, of course, uh, would allow cannabis companies access, sorely needed access to federal banking services. Uh, and that's, that would be huge for the industry in so many regards. And I think that this panel is going to speak upon that act in some depth. So I'll, I'll leave it there for now. Um, you've got other um, acts that would go even further. So, for instance, the MACE Act, the, the State Reform Act, um, that would uh, obviously uh, legalize cannabis at the federal level, uh, or at least decriminalize it. And that would have, uh, of course, implications for banking, um, but also so many other implications, uh, including as regards interstate commerce relating to cannabis. And that's um, uh, the, the degree to which that would impact the industry is obviously profound and I, I think doesn't need to be stated. Um, but I, I guess the question becomes, do we invest ourselves in a process where we really wait for that big enchilada and we try and push that bigger picture there, which is cannabis legalization as a whole? Or do we try and take the, the victory, the milestone victory, and to go for the SAFE Act? Um, personally, at this point, I would like to see the SAFE Act. Um, I, I, would, I would be very pleased to have that land grab just to, to achieve that milestone, because I do know that for our clients, and I'm sure Brady and Sarah have friends in the industry, it's torture, right? Not being able to have that mm -hmm. access uh, to, the federal, to federal banking. It affects investments. It affects processing payments. Uh, it affects uh, uh, the degree to which you can grow across borders and, and so many other things here. So just to have that uh, degree of legitimacy, I think, would do so much for the industry. And at this point, having seen so many acronyms floating about um, over such a long period of time, I'd be I'd be satisfied with that victory, the SAFE Act, personally. Then you have other things uh, like like the CIA, uh, the CIA, uh, CIA, uh, OA Act, uh, which really focuses on uh, inequities. Right. And so they're, they're a bit more. Um, I guess narrow in their focus, but obviously also contributing uh, to a large degree to this to this conversation. Uh, and I, I think overall, where we've come to is that even Biden has indicated, at least during his campaign, uh, he had said flat out that cannabis should be uh, uh, decriminalized. Um, and and he, he made some pretty hefty promises and he repeated those promises. So it wasn't like a slip of the tongue. And then he, he uh, of course, uh, seemed to retract uh, that, at least by his actions, in the sense that uh, there's been uh, there's been heat uh, given to the Biden administration because certain folks have been penalized um, for marijuana usage, uh, White House staffers and so forth. Uh, and he's made other statements that made it clear that he's not necessarily supportive uh, of uh, the, the, the state rights uh, in regard to cannabis, uh, as he seemed to be doing the campaign. So overall, um, my, my view of this is I, I'd be satisfied with the Safe Act victory. Not satisfied, but I, I think at this point, that's what I think we should focus on. We should take the line grab. I would definitely be satisfied mm -hmm. with the SAFE Act. Uh, and I think that's a great synopsis of kind of where we are. I think you laid that out very well. The only thing I would add just briefly is, you know, winning begets winning. So the SAFE Act, everyone thinks, yeah. everyone in today's world of instant gratification and social media wants everything right now. Uh, everyone mm -hmm. is very Veruca Salt uh, in, in Charlie's Chocolate Factory. 
And that's not how DC works to upend close to 80 years of a war on drugs is not going to spin on a, it's not going to spin very quickly. We're not going to achieve that victory. You got to get the first victory is what I've been preaching. DC is a game of incrementalism inch by inch and banking is our first step. And it's for a myriad of reasons. I'm, I, I operated a business that had 400 employees and we lost our freaking payroll. I can't tell you how many times that's not fun. Uh, when your effective cost of capital is north of, you know, 13 to 15%, that's not fun. When you really truly want to empower this social equity movement, which has to happen. I'm, you know, my father went to prison for cannabis. I can't imagine for some of the folks who've watched their fathers go to prison and now want to have a chance to enter the space to right the wrongs. How are they going to get the capital to do it? You can issue social yeah. equity licenses till you're blue in the face. It's not actually going to lead to something. So I think the SAFE Act is our first step. And then I think you'll see some type of a compromise between the MORE Act and the CAOA. And I applaud. You got to remember from a political standpoint, think about the, the think about the, uh, the States Reform Act filed by Republican Nancy Mace. First off, kudos to her. Second, she has the backing of some real companies in American yeah. industry. You've got the Koch brothers. You've got Amazon. So that just shows you the level to which we're achieving bipartisan support. When I first started lobbying in the Senate, we focused primarily on Senate Republicans when we started because that's who we needed to flip. It, it, it was a very cold reception in those hallways. It was a very cold reception in those offices back in 2015, 2016, 2017. And it wasn't until you saw some of the East Coast states like Florida and others start to fall that we got a, a little bit of a warmer reception. We didn't get to mm -hmm. tossed up offices. So uh, to me, I think we really need to focus as an industry on what safe's going to do from a crime prevention standpoint and from a social equity funding and ultimately a funding standpoint. It is, and I'm talking to leadership on a regular basis, it is uniformly known within, the, within Congress, it is the bill that has the highest chance of passing. The CAOA is DOA. So I, to me, it's really uh, safe, and then some combination of a MORE Act plus a States Reform Act if there's a negotiation. And then ultimately, is Biden going to follow through with his campaign promises? With a, he could swipe his pen and get a big chunk of people out of prison, uh, 26, 2700 oh, yeah. people out of federal prison, and, you know, we also the last piece of legislation, and he's a good friend of mine, and I'm proud to know him, is uh, the, the HOPE Act filed by Dave Joyce and AOC. One of the biggest misnomers in cannabis is that there's some federal expungement action that doesn't exist. That these, most of these convictions, over 90 percent of the convictions that people have on their records are at the state level, meaning you need state level action to expunge those records. You can't force a state under the principles of federalism to do that. So you need to fund and facilitate the state's having the ability and the resources to offer those expungements. And that's what Dave Joyce has put forth in the HOPE Act. And I think you're going to be surprised with some of the Senate Republicans you'll see that are going to sign on as co-sponsors to that bill. So overall, I think we're in a good place, but it was a very good overview. Super I think, interesting. I think Sorry. part of this is, is strategy too, and thinking about how, um, you know, how is, is safe banking going to actually get passed long-term too. Um, and, and we're seeing right now, you know, the, there are variations of it. People are trying to attach it to other bills as riders. Um, there's the, the idea, the hope that you could attach it to something that's a, a must-pass bill too, a funding bill. Um, so I think, you know, right now we're actually seeing this, the safe banking bill attached to another bill to see where it's going to go in Congress at the moment. Um, and that's to be determined. I think it's, it's actually, on a, it was on a vote yesterday. Um, it's I think it's getting voted on here this afternoon on the combined yeah. amendment inclusion. Yep. Um, and I think that's that's really going to inform a lot of this, too. And, and one of the things we don't talk about, too, with safe banking is it informs a lot of other industries, too. So you have the insurance industry that's that's going to sort of take note of this. Um, yeah. and it frees up a lot of um, ability for people to operate in this space in a in a in a way that will be consistent and safe and, and much more highly regulated. Um 
I would say I would agree with Brady too. I think that one of the best ways to operate in DC is to sort of be gently um, persistent and then just sort of keep looking at routes and ways in which you can drive a bill or, you know, legislation forward. Um, and with, with um, the council for federal cannabis regulation, you know, we, we sort of deal with what is ultimately the, um, the implementation of legislation, which is regulation, uh, and sort of thinking through as people are drafting the legislation, what are the consequences of it? What are the unintended consequences? Uh, and then being able to inform the industry about how what happens at the legislative end will then translate into regulation, which is in the real world what everybody has to deal with. Uh, and that's both at the state and federal level. Um, I I would think too that there should be a little bit more discussion of the CAO because even though it doesn't reference sort of medical cannab medical use cannabis, um, it it does sort of create a pathway that's more uh, I think feasible from what you would see in terms of um, how we can approachably deal with regulation in a responsible and reasonable way, which is that even with the with the um, with the mace bill the, this. Uh, the carve out for this industry is still going to be regulated by FDA. Um, there is, there is a, within the, the, the maze bill that it's, it's sort of between FDA and TTB as to where this goes, but for human health and safety aspects, it will still go to FDA. Um, and I think in the CAO bill, my, my point being here that um, it, it creates a pathway for, for medical research, for pharma, um, for things that don't necessarily exist right now. Um, and I think that what you might see from the Biden administration, and there's a lot of rumor uh, around Washington right now about whether or not the Biden administration may move to uh, place cannabis in Schedule 2 as opposed to Schedule 1 where it is now, um, which I don't know, you know how accurate those rumors are. Um, that seems consistent with some of the the narrative from the administration, though, even if you're talking mm -hmm. about criminalizing, because moving to Schedule 2 means that you can transport the product from um, from legal state to legal state. Uh, and in that point, too, FDA law will always trump DEA law. Um, uh, I would think, too, with if, if we're moved to Schedule 2, that would certainly indicate to um, the DEA and to a lot of the research facilities that this is being opened up for medical research, uh, which will solve a number of different problems, both from recreational use, from the people who are advocates for medical use cannabis, um, and for people who are supportive of, of the pharmaceutical route, which will include more safety data about dosing um, and effectiveness and efficacy. Super interesting. And actually, I was going to ask you about the, the different agencies regulating um, the, the industry, depending on, on each law. But I think you just covered it. You, you read my mind there. So let's move on a little bit into, you know, the MACE Act and, and the recent announcement around uh, Amazon coming out in support of the MACE Act vocally. Right. Because uh, Amazon had hinted not having issues with cannabis. They stopped testing their employees. But now they came out and, and vocally, you know, it, you know, they put it in words, right? They said this this is a piece of legislation that we support. So what does what does it mean, right? What does it imply? Um, and I see you, Brady. Uh, I, I believe you want to start with this one. Yeah, happy to start with it. I think, look, anytime you have one of the most powerful and largest companies in the world uh, jumping into the cannabis fray to support legalization, I think this gives you a great barometer from an overall standpoint of where we are as an industry. But if you start to drill down into the state's reform act, 
you know, my biggest issue with other pieces of legislation like the Moore Act and the CAOA is that they go very, very deep into the weeds, pun intended, uh, when on, on federal regulation of this industry, which if we're talking about social equity, you're now having to have, you know, you, you, you're not going to have the opportunity. It's going to be much harder for those applicants to enter the space when they got to get a potential for an FDA license and other federal licenses to be able to conduct business as opposed to and, and very large federal excise taxes. States Reform Act is that I've called it and tweeted about it is the most passable piece of cannabis legislation that I've seen thus far solely because for Republicans, Republicans are not in a lot, the largely the Republican caucus on a libertarian standpoint is largely okay with states' rights. I mean, Cory Gardner championed this to begin with. I was lucky enough to work with him and his staff on the, his bill, which was the States Act. And now that's called the States Reform Act from Nancy Mace. And it's, it, they, they're similar, but Nancy Mace did a much better job of including other provisions that were going to be potential problem areas to try to solve for those problems. But Republicans really want to see this relegated to the state level regulation. And let's be real honest, the states have done a pretty good job. The state level operate, the state level regulatory agencies have done a tremendous job thus far with very few patient complaints in regulating this burgeoning industry. So I think the state's reform act gives deference to that. There is federal oversight. And look, it's, if you read the bill and put it up against how alcohol is regulated, it's very similar. Um, and that's, that's not, a, you know, I believe in coincidences. I've just never seen one. So at the end of the day, that don't, that, that's one of those coincidences. So for me, it's a very interesting bill because you'll be able to attract that state's rights minded portion of the Republican caucus. And then what needs to be added to it by way of administrative action on social justice, uh, state level action via the HOPE Act on social justice. And can some other provisions be added on there to make sure that we don't lose the Republican votes that are needed, but we bring along enough of the more progressive part of the Democratic Party to get them to sign on to it as well. But that's why I truly believe you'll see a, uh, I think you're going to see the MORE Act reintroduced here in the short term in the Senate. And then that'll set up a potential for some deal making between the states, the States Reform Act and Nancy Mace, as well as uh, what's potentially going to potentially look like could be there for the MORE Act. There's provisions that can be parsed from both. But ultimately, I think it's a great first bill. Uh, and I think that's why you've seen the support that it's gotten. I'd be very interested. I think everyone's going to be surprised with some of the Senate sponsors that come on. Board and we'll see where it goes. Sorry for the time. Brady, I've, I've got, a got a quick question for you. I'm wondering, have you read, um, I know the, the Attorney General's Alliance put out a, a note, um, I think it was a guidance paper on cooperative federalism and how um, sort of the, the state regulators and the federal regulators could sort of more collaboratively work together. And I'm wondering if, if you've had a chance to read that or not. And if, if, you, if you did, what your take on it is. I've read the letter. I read it briefly to be candid, but I think the biggest problem and, and the state regulators have kind of been on an island uh, because there has it's still a schedule one drug and they haven't had the opportunity to really. There's no real federal research going on. There isn't the ability to do this. So I think that's a partnership that's going to have to exist. It's when that actually happens. And, what you know, Biden's the rumor of Biden following through with the descheduling. Uh, you know, whether or not he does it or not, you know, Nancy or uh, Elizabeth Warren wrote a letter to uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland back in October, early October, calling for a deschedule proceeding. It's been crickets ever since. Uh, there's been multiple letters that have been sent from congressional members asking for this. So that public that, that partnership at the, from between the state regulators and the federal regulators, I think, is a, it's going to have to be very important. But when that actually happens is one thing. But more, additionally, you got to look at. There's not, you know, there, there's certainly partnerships and other state and federal partnerships across other areas. Law enforcement's one of them. How effective those are, 
you know, that that's one thing. So that's why I think this bill is very attractive because it's going to vest most of the authority with the state level folks. Yeah, I would say for anybody in the audience who's listening to when, when even when you're talking about a reschedule, this is a very long runway. I mean, it's going to take a lot of time to do this. It, it, it sometimes can take up to, you know, anywhere from six to 10 years in order to even implement this. So um, whatever we're talking about right now, it sounds urgent, but the reality of the situation is it takes a really long time. Um, and there are a lot of, um, you know, uh, treaties and a number of different things that would have to be sort of thought out throughout this process, um, which will run itself into possibly another administration where you could see a complete reversal too. Um, so there's, you know, there's, there's a lot that could occur here and a lot that probably won't occur. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the, the right. issue. Sorry, you go ahead, Tommy. Yeah, I was um, just going to add one. I think Sarah is absolutely right on that point. And, and uh, I, I would like to add, I think that Amazon it's very exciting that they came out in support, obviously, of legalization. Of course, that's a big deal. But I, I think it's a big deal that Coach came out in support, right, um, mm -hmm. in some sense, because he's such a powerful backer of Republican candidates across the country. And that really, I think, does a lot uh, to give permission, in a sense, to Republican uh, members of Congress to support cannabis legalization or these various milestones leading up to full legalization at the federal level. So I find uh, the coach endorsement of cannabis legalization to be even more exciting. I think it's a bigger milestone. And Amazon is huge. Of course, it's huge. But for no, me, the excitement is really spot yeah. And I, I the Koch brothers, too, are completely, I think, aligned on, on criminal justice reform, too. I mean, they've, they've put together a number of different organizations, including Americans for Progress, uh, I think, which is part of the United States Cannabis Council. Yeah. which, you know, that that's that's pretty much the sole focus is criminal justice reform. So if there's anything that's that sort of runs on both sides of the political aisle, it is really sort of, um, I think, access for people who, who do legitimately use cannabis for medical purposes and yeah. criminal justice reform to to a great degree, which would mean, um, you know, sort of holding Biden to to do something about um, uh, decriminalizing this. I sit yeah, on the board. I, I think, uh, sorry, Brady, go ahead. No, I, I'm very proud to sit on the board of, a, of the Weldon Angeles Project. Uh, Weldon was a death row mm -hmm. record rapper who ultimately was indicted for less than $300 of cannabis, and they were trying to get him to flip on various different music artists within death row. And they sentenced to close to 55 years in prison, and it was the Koch brothers in, in large part who helped fund his eventual campaign to get him out of prison. Uh, and they are very, from a libertarian standpoint, they're very much behind it. And I, I think you're spot on and Tom and, and the discussion on yeah, that, that has empowered a lot of Republicans to step out into the sunshine on this. I just had the opportunity to spend the afternoon with representative Joyce down here in Florida. And, you know, that's one of the things that we were both remarking on when we first started, when I first started in DC in 15 on this issue, you could very rarely get a, a meeting with someone on the Republican side of the aisle that was warm to cannabis. That is a 180. Yeah. And I actually think the yeah. mainstream media grossly underreports the level of Republican support for common sense measures like criminal justice reform. And I mean, if it's legal in a state, someone shouldn't be sitting in prison for it. Uh, so it, it, it's it, that is a that is a point very well made. Uh, thank you for raising it. And I think uh, it, it, it's something that we need to watch very closely because I think you're going to see a lot more high level Republicans. I think you got to look at the political battle, too, here. I mean, we're coming up to an election year. It's quite the steal of an issue. This cannabis has largely been viewed to be a Democrat core issue for a long time. And aside from tweeting about it, since they took control of Congress, they haven't done anything. Uh, Congress and the White House. 
And I think Republicans are also smart enough to sense that that's an opportunity to both follow through on states' rights and libertarian principles, but also seize a win ahead of the midterms. And I think you can't discount that as we head into this process. And you don't see, again, the timing of everything. Timing's everything. All of this flurry of activity, I think you're going to see that increase as we get closer to the midterms up and through probably the summer when it goes more lame and it goes gets, you know, everyone goes to their bunkers to get ready for the campaign season ahead of November. But this is all happening in real time. And, and, and it's an incredible thing to be a part of because you're now seeing Republicans look to cannabis to seize an issue to almost steal it from the Democrats, which someone sitting here wanting to see something just finally freaking happen. I don't care who does it. I just want to see it happen. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I think the Republicans have a huge opportunity to grab this issue and to really reap some massive political gains from it. I also think that it highlights um, a disappointment that a lot of us feel in Biden, because at this point, when, when you have the Koch brothers supporting cannabis reform, and I, I agree with Grady that, that the media's estimates or apparent estimates of the support in, uh, uh, within the Republican segments of Congress uh, for cannabis legalization um, I think that there's really no excuse for Biden to not take some big steps, at least allowing federal prisoners to go free um, who are uh, uh, incarcerated as a function of cannabis usage and or possession. Um, but even further, um, it, there's really no excuse for him not to decriminalize outright across the country, there, there, it, it, particularly in light of his express comments made during the election in that direction. So it really is a massive disappointment, and, and the Koch brother support of it just highlights and amplifies the disappointment, in my in my view. Oh yeah, I'd, I'd like to bring up a point that that sort of talks a little bit to to what Brady was discussing earlier. Um, and this is this is actually where the where the federal government does a good job, um, and that is when you uh, and there's many places where the federal government does a good job. <laughs> I didn't want to misstate that, but um, I think uh, one of the you know, regulation in and of itself brings a lot of burden to the industry. And I think nobody here, um, you know, denies that it, it's it, 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 it can be costly, um, it, but it also ensures good standards. It ensures good practices in a number of different ways. It it really eliminates a lot of corporate liability, too, which is a big cost saver. Um, and that's why you do see, you know, um, such a, an emphasis on safe banking and getting that passed, because that really it, it paves the way for good capitalism and good American business. Um, and it's a great, it's great for companies. Um, and I also think that, that when you do see um, the federal government start to step in with regulation and you get the agencies more involved, it, it is the sense that, that regulation, yes, creates a burden, but it also creates a great opportunity at the same time. Um, and you do see, you know, if, if you were, let's say to, um, to, uh, introduce something like the CAO bill and, and you have um, an, a world in which you could get Medicare and Medicaid for some of these prescriptions. Think of what a cost savings that is to the American public, what that does for the legitimization of this, for the normalization of cannabis use um, and for access to medical research um, and to get, you know, you know, proper dosing and things that people really need in order to have a physical benefit from this beyond just the recreational market, um, which is a whole nother world in and of itself. Um, mm -hmm. And then you also see things like the, the Small Business Administration stepping in to, to grant micro loans to small and medium sized businesses um, and to be able to really start to put the wheels of government into funding some of the businesses that they have not done before. Um, and that opens up, you know, quite a bit of, of revenue and resources that have heretofore been completely non-existent. Um, so, again, I, I, regulation, yes, it's a burden, but it brings a lot of opportunity at the same time. 
Oh yeah, indeed. We have a couple questions from the chat that I would like to address real quickly. Uh, one should be fairly simple. I think it's best for, for Tom. It's uh, legal uh, and it's from Alan. Uh, can schedule to mean that you can bring cannabis on a plane and take it from one legal state to, to the next? Well, one thing about these different schedules is that uh, they, they come with their own regulations, right? So, so getting cannabis removed from Schedule 1 would be a great victory, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can throw the cannabis that you have in your closet into a suitcase and bring it onto a plane um, because there are all kinds of, uh, of regulations that correspond uh, to, to uh, products, to substances that are on the various schedules below Schedule 1 on the, on the Substances Act. So I would say the answer in the purest sense is no. Um, but, um, uh, of course, uh, with a movement to Schedule 2 or Schedule 3, uh, then you're going to have uh, ostensibly uh, regulations that follow that, uh, that reduction in schedule. And with those regulations come parameters within, within which, yes, if you're complying with those parameters, uh, then, then you should be able to, to move medicines uh, as you move other medicines uh, in the context of interstate flights. Yeah, I think it would also still depend on the airline too. They they may have different rules, regulations themselves. Fantastic. And here's another one from Connor. Can we get some clarification surrounding safe banking? Visa and MasterCard recently stated they will not support the industry until federally legal. Does safe include consumer debit or credit use? Um, I'm, happy to, I'm, I'm happy to take a stab at it. Uh, great question. And I think it's a question that's on the minds of a lot of my fellow guys and gals and C-suites uh, of, of cannabis SSOs and MSOs, because we're still largely very much a cash business. There is the ability to do some uh, debit transactions, but my, most of the industry is still cash. And with interstate commerce, we'll open up potentially down the road some point. But it would be certainly nice to be able to process credit cards uh, like any other business at CPG that's selling products or services. So. Uh, safe banking on its core will trigger uh, FinCEN and Treasury to update their anti-money laundering guidance and provide safe harbors that will right now, the, the hard part with cannabis and banking cannabis and or for credit card processors is if they facilitate a transaction, they're technically triggered into uh, potential anti-money laundering guidance uh, where they could have some liability in those compliance departments of the banks, as well as the credit card companies. That's just a risk they can't take given the volume of business that they do. Um, mm -hmm. so SAFE will trigger that review and the new regulations that will come out uh, of that process and the updated FinCEN guidance will be what will hopefully provide cover fire for the banks and or uh, credit card processors and even ultimately potentially uh, U.S. Uh, exchanges uh, so that companies can potentially list here. But we won't know the answer to that question. We won't know what kind of cover fire there is there until we actually go through that and see what kind of regulations come out after the passage of SAFE. But SAFE prompts this process, it provides a safe harbor, and then it will ultimately require this process to occur at the administrative level within FinCEN and Treasury to get rid of these archaic laws that classify anything you do with respect to a state legal business and cannabis as potential money laundering. Mm -hmm. And that opens up the door for us to offer MasterCard involved as well as you know the banks. Now, is do, do I think the JP Morgans and the Wells Fargo's of the world are going to jump in right away? Absolutely not. I mean, they've got large, robust compliance systems. It's going to take them a second. They've got international treaty obligations that might not be legal in some of the other places where they have uh, are doing business. But I do think you'll see these small and mid-sized banks enter the space first, uh, and then ultimately the bigger banks as they get their arms around it and get comfortable from a compliance standpoint. 
they're almost akin to the federal government. They're not going to move as quickly uh, as, as some of the smaller state level stuff. So I think it, it's an exciting time. And that's where what I would tell folks to pay attention to is passing safe is a huge first step. And then it's time to pay very careful attention to the regulatory rulemaking process as to what the new FinCEN guidance that comes out looks like, because that will ultimately be the stepping stone to potential access to U.S. capital markets and more efficient markets, to pension funds and institutional investors being able to deploy capital into the space, to custodians that are trading shares to be able to actually deposit the shares, as, as we saw the hiccups with Pershing and J.P. Morgan. That guidance that comes out of the safe banking triggered FinCEN process is going to be the, what tells us whether what can happen versus what cannot happen. And that's what's going to be the most important process. Getting safe across the lines, the first step, the real work in my mind and where I'm focusing my efforts will be once we get into that administrative process. Very, very cool. Um, Sarah, Tom, anything you'd want to add here? Oh, I thought it was a great summary. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Great summary by Brady. And I think that I, I, the overall theme, I think, is that um, while, while the specifics may not be known, uh, the fact is that the SAFE Act will facilitate all of it, period. Uh, it really will. It's, it's going to, it may take more time to flesh out some of the details of, of, of um, those sorts of things like credit card processing, but the SAFE Act is, is necessary and I think even in some sense a sufficient step in that direction, meaning that once the SAFE Act happens, I think those other things follow. In yeah. Time. I would piggyback onto that saying that it's a lot of the ancillary services too, that will, will feel very freed up by this too, so that you will have access to insurance. You will have like right. all of the other portions of this that go along with it, start to fall into place, which then will inform sort of the larger players in the banking space, you know, about what they need to do and, and sort of get with the program at this stage. Um, but it was a great summary by Brady. And, and I think right. it, it, it speaks to the importance of, of getting safe banking passed. And I, I, I would throw this out there for um, both for Tom and for Brady, too, is if, if safe banking doesn't go through this time, what do you think is the projection of this for the future? Um, where would you if you had a crystal ball right now, where would you say it might seek passage? I think you're another administration or, or new Congress. I think I personally and everyone, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of people on Twitter that are going to groan right now. But I would I would in my humble belief, reading tea leaves and talking to leadership, I think there'll be enough movement in social equity initiatives at either the stuff directly I'm working on at, at the White House level, AG level and or via the HOPE Act getting moved and getting some good sponsors that SAFE is going to potentially move here. I, I'd give it a very strong chance that it moves here before the midterms. Sometime, and I know Boris Jordan, CEO of Kiraleaf, shares a similar view. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit more bullish on the timing. I think a, a little window of opportunity is going to open up here because you got to look at this. The Democrats have not really achieved anything thus far, according to their agenda that they laid out at the start of the of their of their control here. I mean, it's it, they're very minimal things that they I mean. CRs have passed and a few items that matter, but you know the big ticket items have been a big miss. Uh, cannabis, yeah. big miss. Uh, BBB, big miss. Uh, the budget process, debt ceiling, we're still all biting our fingernails. So we're just probably looking at another clean CR to get us through that. So ultimately, I think there's going to have to be a window where Majority Leader Schumer kind of hits the brakes a little bit on kind of hammer down and not conceding anything. And he's going to have to cut a few deals to get a few wins to give some of the folks that are up for reelection an opportunity and a fair fight. Uh, you've got 20 something plus Democrats that are that are not running for reelection. Uh, that's going to be a big blow on the House side. 
So ultimately, I think you're going to see a window kind of between now and call it Memorial Day, where I think there'll be an opportunity to get some legislation passed. And I, you know, Representative Perlmutter is, is a freaking champion. And he's shown, he, he said on the House Rules Committee on, on the NDAA when it failed, uh, that he, he was told to back down by leadership. He said he was going to introduce it at every opportunity. And, you know, God bless him, he is going to do it. Uh, so I don't think, and he's got the support of his leadership. You know, he's got the support of his fellow House members. And at some point, I think Majority Leader Schumer's just got to blink and take the win. Every Each party will be able to spin it their own way. One will say it's a first step. One will say it's a great step to get. For, but you can't ignore the fact that you're putting people who are working in this business, who believe in this industry, a lot of Americans working in this industry, hundreds of thousands of them. You're going to provide them with a safer workplace and you're going to give the entire industry an opportunity to have access to real capital and to also have the access to be able to operate like a normal business with normal costs and provide real insurance and real benefits for their employees. So I think you see that happen between now and Memorial Day is, is my bet. And, you know, I'm long the space, but that's my bet. Definitely. Yeah, we have so, one more question. Uh, you, oh, go ahead. I was just going you know, to add that just to say that I agree. I, I would think that um, that the SAFE Act has a very good chance of passing this legislative ses- this legislative term. Um, but I've thought that before. So, <laughs> so you got to take that with a grain of Again, people are groaning when I said it. We have uh, one more question from the chat that I really like from, from Proton or Proton73. Uh, what would you suggest uh, that we, you know, the people could do to promote or, or, or help speed up legalization, right? What are some things that, that regular people can do to, to push legalization forward? Well, uh, you know, um, write your legislator. <laughs> First and foremost, um, absolutely. You know, you know that that's still the, the best way to do this. Tell them stories. Um, I I have talked to a number of different labs and, and sort of companies here and and said, you know, invite your your state legislator and your federal legislators to visit your facilities. Let them see what you're doing. Seeing is believing. Engage them in the conversation, have the dialogues, introduce them to the people who are your users, who are your consumers, um, and start to just really you know, bridge the gap here because this is a, a, a new, it's, it's a, it's a new world. Um, and the, the people who are on the Hill are not used to this and it's a way for you to start to open the doors, let them see how it works um, and build dialogues and conversation. It's, it's a communication and advocacy problem that you, you don't want to be an activist to, to a certain degree. You want to be an advocate and yes. you want to be an educator more so than anything else. Education is the key to all of this because that is what ultimately will destigmatize, normalize, and legitimize this industry. Sarah, drop the mic. Unbelievable. You couldn't have said it better. Uh, for me, the only other thing I would add is, you know, there's a, there's a great list, working group list of uh, phone numbers and email addresses for legislators and regulators. I know everyone thinks, yeah, yeah, I send it and no one pays attention. I can tell you from having spoken to Democratic leadership on the Senate side after the flurry of activity uh, with the NDAA process, that that was phones ringing like they'd never heard on other issues even. I mean, they likened it to some of the most, uh, you know, strongest and biggest issues that this country has faced in the last 10 years. The phone rang on this as much as some of those issues. That has a massive impact. They were, Staff reports that to the member. Okay, how many phone calls did we get on this? If the phones are ringing, if the letters are coming in, if people are writing and talking about how this is directly affecting their life and how it's something they want to have the opportunity to do. 
that is a, it, it, I know oftentimes people feel like, yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter. It absolutely matters. It, it gives all of the advocates that are actually on the Hill because everyone can't go walk the halls. Everyone's not, doesn't have the time to go do that, but you can take 30 seconds out of your day and send an email or 30 seconds out of your day, call your Congressman. Hey, I'm so-and-so here's my phone number. Here's my address. It's the last for those things. And this is how I feel about this issue. You can't underscore how important that is. And if you're not doing it already, start it now because you're going to see me on Twitter asking for people to turn the noise up. There's now we're dealing with the America Competes Act. Turn the volume up because I can tell you all of our natural predators, and let's be real honest here, all of our natural predators, alcohol, tobacco, and pharma who, who want to see that, who are watching what we do very closely as an industry, they're very good at making the phone rings and they have about a 60 year head start in lobbying and campaign finance over us. So we got to yeah. come and we got to be scrappy and we got to turn the noise up. Yeah. And, and remember, the stigma in D.C. is that still that this is just people who want to get high. And that's not the truth. And it's important, it's important to bring this to to a point where you are talking about criminal justice reform. You are talking about health and social equity. You are talking about all of the things that impact this industry, including sustainability, um, if you're even looking at the hemp industry. Um <laughs> and access to products and safe products. And, and, you know, so when you're talking to your legislators, bring all of this to the forefront because you've got to be able to thread the needle with this story for them so that they understand that this is not just about a recreational use drug. This is about a whole history of the U.S. government having implemented very bad legislation, very bad policy. And now we have to unravel a lot of that. And it's going to take a long time, but it's going to take great activism or excuse me, great, ad, great education, great uh, advocacy. And um, I think, you know, reason voices who also want to do this in a responsible way, um, who are sort of, you know, the smart kids in the room who want to say, we want to create an industry here. We want to do it responsibly. We want to do a good job and we want to do it now. <laughs> We're ready. If there's any MSO folks out there that are listening from the C-suites of any cannabis operators, the other point that I think Sarah made, and I used to do this quite a bit when we operated our farm in Florida, is have your local, state, and federal representatives and leaders, government leaders, come to your farm and spend the time to not only see how it's cultivated, see the level of sophistication that you're operating with, see how this is something that people put their mind, body, and hearts into when they go to work. And then ultimately, we used to have them come to the stores quite a bit too, so they could interact with patients. So they didn't see it was just, not just a bunch of you know hippies and VW buses getting high in the parking lot, but it was grandma and grandpa coming in because they want to sleep through the night. It was a lot of, of, of our nation service members coming in looking for an alternative to opiates to deal with pain and other problems that they had. It was, it was the working class professional coming in who didn't want to have three drinks after work, who wanted to take the edge off a different way so they could feel good the next day. It's those types of interactions. One of those interactions for a, a, a policymaker, it has a, I've watched it personally, has a profound impact almost instantaneously when you begin working with them on how they view the issue and ultimately how they're going to legislate on the issue and build a coalition to eventually achieve change. I know, again, it feels like, okay, what does one meeting do? I have physically over the last six years, seven years, seen it work inch by inch. And as you see members begin to go, hey, man, I went and saw this dispensary. It was, you know, think about Orrin Hatch. I don't know, you guys are, you know, both from, remember when Orrin Hatch gave a speech? Here's a Mormon from Utah who didn't even drink Coca-Cola <laughs> because it had caffeine in it. But he had enough people in his office in Utah who were fighting epilepsy with cannabis and it was working for him to stand up on the Senate floor and give a speech in support of the Meds Act. That just shows you what 
constituents in his district coming to see him had the impact on that man to step up and be an advocate for this space as one of the most powerful senators has probably ever actually occupied an office in that building. That just shows you in a very short period of time how much he was profoundly impacted for him to step out in front of it. He, everybody in this country that's listening to this or wants to be a part of this, that is where you can have a profound impact. Yeah. And, and I'll add to that, too, because Brady's making a good point. Um, you will also see, you know, CFCR works. We work with sort of hesitant stakeholder companies. And those are the sort of big companies that because this is not fairly legal yet, have not sort of stepped into the space. Um, but you will see the more you have these conversations, the more you're inviting people, the more of those big companies, which, you know, do sort of move the economy, they're going to get into this um, and they are going to help move that forward too. Uh, and that will be a big boon for everybody. Um, and, you know, and that's really what does open up economic opportunity um, and what will ultimately grow this industry, you know, substantially. Um, and, you know, the, the more you can have that conversation, the more the legislators see it, the more they see other companies that are big American companies sort of stepping into this, um, the better. I think one additional component to the conversation is approaching it from the other side, right? If you haven't seen that show on Hula, Dope Sick, I highly recommend it. Um, one, it's a very well done show. Two, it'll make you very mad. It certainly made me mad. Um, and three, it, it, it highlights by contrast how valuable uh, a role cannabis can play in, 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 a, in a health and wellness conversation here throughout the country and throughout the world. Uh, and, and that show, if you're not familiar with it, speaks about the opioid ep epidemic from the perspective of Purdue Pharma and the the horrible um, acts that were committed, I think in collaboration with the FDA, and that's a strong statement, but you should watch the show and it's, 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 it's nothing that's not known widely. Um, and that highlights the degree to which cannabis, it really is a travesty that this naturally occurring plant has been suppressed for so many years, decades, centuries. Um, and, and it's in the context of, of, of opioids being pushed uh, with the approval of the FDA uh, and that's, it, it's stronger than heroin. And, and that is a truly addictive drug. It's, it's massively debilitating. Uh, and, and cannabis has almost none of those horrible repercussions, uh, including that heavy level of addiction that goes along with opioid usage, with heroin usage. So that, it, it really is approaching, uh, approaching the PTSD uh, uh, situation and yep. understanding how little success we've had in treating PTSD with other, with other modalities. And, and the fact that we're suppressing cannabis, which has been demonstrated to alleviate uh, irrelevant uh, psycho psychological and, and physiological uh, conditions associated with PTSD, uh, the, the fact that it's suppressed really, it, it makes it all the more urgent to have this conversation. So, so I recommend also looking um, at these other components of the conversation that sort of illustrate by contrast uh, how important it is to really get serious about cannabis legalization. Yeah, and and I I will add to what Tom said. A dope sick is is a great doc. Um, is a docu series with it's actually a it's a Hulu series, um, based off a really well done research book by a, a, a female author and his, whose name escapes me right now. But um, I I think the the FDA certainly got um, you know it, it did not portray them in a very good light. And I think because of that, they are probably very wary, too, of the situation with the cannabis industry and not wanting to repeat the sins of the past, too, and making sure that as they go forward, they really do have, you know, um, uh, evidence-based science um, that they are, you know, dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's and making sure that that as they that they don't 
they don't create a bad situation over again. Um, and I think that that speaks to the level, level of credibility in the work that goes on behind the scenes with the, the people who are there trying to make the right, right decisions and trying to get the right data and, you know, um, you know, effectively doing the best job that they can with the understanding of being empathic towards the agencies right now that they've been slammed by COVID. Um, at the moment, they are sort of a little bit leaderless because there is no FDA new commissioner who's yet been appointed. Um, and there's, you know, there's a little bit of fogginess on that side about where they're going to go forward. Um, so I, I think Tom brings up a good point that we have to be sort of thoughtful with the agencies, too, um, in some of the, the difficulties that they face um, and understanding that they've got a history. Um, but their ultimate goal is the the protection of, of the American consumer and, and, and health and safety. Um, so I just I, again, I encourage people to, to see Dopesick, um, also take it with a grain of salt. Um, and understand that, that the agency really does work to do its job as best it can. Definitely. Um, we're getting close to, to the end. We were slated for, for 30 minutes. We went on for an hour. Um, this is too interesting. Honestly, I'd love to go on forever. And we'll probably repeat this in a couple months, I'm sure. Uh, let's do one last question in relation to capital markets, considering many of our viewers are, are retail investors, right? Um, you know, the, the, the valuations at first in, in, for cannabis stocks seemed ridiculously high. They were not justified by fundamentals. And now we're seeing pretty much the opposite, right? Uh, multiples being really low and, again, not reflecting fundamentals, but in the opposite um, direction. So what, what are you seeing in, in, in the capital markets and, and how would federal legalization change the, the, the situation here? Maybe let's start with Tom. Let's do Tom, Brady and Sarah. We have about seven minutes, so. A lot to pack in there. <laughs> sure. So, well, first, uh, I think we had a hint of how the capital markets might react when Biden first became president, right? When that happened, I think there were rumors of legalization and the capital markets rose for a bit, if you remember, and it was a brief bit, but they, there was actually quite a bit of excitement uh, in the capital markets. Uh, and I think it was just a small hint of what was possible if legalization actually happened. So if legalization happened, the, the money would pour into the sector. I think one way to look at it, too, is you're accessing a whole large volume of money that to date has avoided the cannabis conversation. They haven't even really looked for opportunities within space. All of that money becomes available. And it's a bit of supply and demand there where you've got, you've got more money looking at the, the same number of assets. So, so of, of course, prices have to rise at that point. Uh, so there, that's one aspect of things. I think there'll be some surprising uh, effects of legalization as well at the federal level. So as an example, um, it's different. Uh, cannabis is different than alcohol in the sense that alcohol was legal federally and then it was illegal federally for a short bit during prohibition back in the obviously in the, in the early 1900s. And then it was legal again at the federal level. And it, you didn't have what you have with cannabis where for decades uh, the states have legalized and have complicated and intricate regulatory frameworks, at least some of the states, in the context of federal prohibition and a coal memo that says that the federal government's essentially going to look the other way. That's a brand new phenomenon. And so uh, what you're looking at in the context of federal prohibition is that one, uh, valuations will increase, of course, commerce will increase, but you're also going to have uh, large companies that are coming in and rapidly acquiring the smaller players in the space. And in some sense, prohibition has been awful uh, in many ways, including with incarceration of, of, of people for possession of marijuana, including small amounts of marijuana. And that's just awful in all kinds of ways. Uh, the lack of access to federal banking services, but also it's been a gift in another sense, in a limited sense, 
because it's allowed so many entrepreneurs to thrive, or at least to, to try to become successful. And I think one way to punctuate the point is, I don't know that we'd be having this conversation if prohibition didn't exist, right? I don't know if many of my clients would exist if prohibition didn't exist, right? So when, when federalization ends, there's an urgency that happens to the need to become successful, right? Because if you don't, then you've got two options. One is to get bought, or two is to go, is, is to really just get scrunched out of the marketplace by the bigger players, right? Uh, another thing I think that that's going to be an effect that we should focus on uh, is that certain MSOs today, I think they've thrived because they have an executive talent pool that is exceptional at starting operations de novo in emerging markets, right? So you start a, a cannabis operation in Illinois or in uh, from a headquarters in Illinois or in Colorado or in California, and then it, you expand into other states. And if you're in a traditional industry, a non-cannabis industry where federal prohibition doesn't come into play, you put your products in the truck and you drive them across state lines and you, you go and sell your products in that state. But in cannabis, it's very different. You've got to take your, your quality control uh, parameters and you've got to export them into that other state. You've got to start operations de novo. That's a particular skill set. And the value of that skill set dissipates substantially with the advent of federal legalization. And so what happens to those MSOs? Do they continue to thrive and to, to, to compete uh, so well against the marketplace at that point? Maybe some of them do and maybe some of them don't. So I think that we're gonna see a, a lot of things play out in unexpected ways once federal legalization happens. So overall, it would be a massive boon to the industry, a massive boon to, I think, humanity itself um, because you're uh, applying a, a greater access to these medicines to a larger group of people uh, and you're reducing the stigma to a great degree. Um, there's also going to be some other benefits. Uh, there's also going to be some other side effects, I'll call them as well. And we should be cognizant of those. Yep. I think great, great points. I think, you know, honing in on Javier on your on the capital markets piece, because I know you, a lot of your folks are very keen on that. And it's been a rough 12 months. Uh, there was a big run up on the Biden administration and control of both chambers. Uh, you know, if you look at the numbers, you know, you had all time highs in February and March. And then it's just been a slow, sustained bleed. Uh, up and through what was an absolutely just brutal January. And I think there's a couple of things you got to pay attention to here. Have the underlying fundamentals of the businesses gotten better or worse over time? I think the answer to that is better across the board for almost the large MSOs. So it's not a fundamental story. This isn't, mm -hmm. you know, like Facebook go on sale yesterday because they had an earnings miss and a, and a bad earnings report. These companies are showing sequential growth, even with effective tax rates of north of 60%. And incredibly inefficient operations in silos across states instead of being able to condense their operations. So the fundamentals of, you know, my favorite names, the Veranos, the GTIs, the Cureleafs, uh, th their fundamentals are getting stronger and stronger. Their cost of capital is coming down as well, if you saw yeah. from the most recent press releases. So they're getting they're getting stronger and stronger. I think you see the market weakness as, as twofold. I, I, I kind of attribute two main things that's, as to why you see the volatility and the market weakness. And the multiples are an absolute joke on where these companies are trading as compared to their CPG peers, off both, both EBITDA and revenue. Um, first thing I look at, we are primarily constrained based, as a result of the Schedule 1 classification uh, to Canadian Securities Exchange and or the OTC markets, which are incredibly inefficient and largely inaccessible to U.S. institutional investors. So you primarily have retail. Now, there's a great opportunity there if you're a good retail investor, because I can't think of many other times when retail was able to out was, was able to front run uh, institutional. It's but it's 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 not for lack of pain, though. There's plenty of pain. Life on the frontier isn't easy is something I say quite a bit, because, <laughs> again, if you want to be able to front run these institutions, it's not easy. That said, you got to pick you, you got to pick your horses wisely. And 
you know, you got to remember that we're dealing with incredibly inefficient markets with naked shorting, uh, with, with custodial issues, uh, and sometimes how stocks can actually clear and be traded. And then you just have some days where there's just absolutely no volume. I mean, compare a, compare a, a Verano that did over $100 million in just EBITDA, and it'll trade three to 400,000 shares a day on the OTC markets to a Tilray that I don't think did that in top line revenue, or maybe did that in top line revenue. And they're trading 15 million shares a day on the New York Stock Exchange, much healthier market, much healthier quote and bid, much healthier fundamental shareholder base with institutions behind it. So mm -hmm. that's where I think when you see safe banking, you're ultimately going to see a step towards institutions being uh, at a level of comfort to be able to invest in these from a safe harbor standpoint. You're going to see the first steps in allowing us to look at potentially uplist. It drives me, pardon my language, batshit crazy that if you're a Canadian company paying Canadian taxes, serving Canadian consumers, you can list on the New York Stock Exchange and bank at a U.S. bank. If you are a U.S. company paying U.S. taxes, and by the way, a lot of them, like 60 percent U.S. You know, federal tax rates, and you're serving U.S. consumers, you have to list in Canada and find a credit union somewhere to, to, to move your cash to via an armored car service. That has to stop. And that is where I think you see some of the pain get felt in these markets. But for me, it's, it's some of these are kind of set it and forget it investments. Uh, maybe, you know, from a time to time, go back in, rebalance based on how the quarterlies go, which is largely what I do. Or if I find an opportunity to dollar cost average down as there's these little blips up and down in volatility. But again, it's when, not if. And if you pick the right horses and you pay attention to what's going on federally, retail has an opportunity to out to, to front run institutional the institutions. And that, that rarely, rarely happens. So it's, yeah. I'm still incredibly long the space. Fantastic. Sarah, any concluding thoughts? Yeah, I, I would be back on what, uh, on what Brady said, too, that the markets are obviously not very bullish on this space right now. Um, but if you do see the, the passage of safe banking, um, you know, everything's going to soar. And that's that's because this is an industry where a rising tide lifts all boats. Uh, and that's exactly what will happen if you see safe banking go through. Um, I, I would note, too, just just thinking about sort of a lot of the, the cryptocurrencies and digital currencies that are out there, too. I think they're driven by a lot of liquidity on the market right now, um, particularly in the Canada of the sectors um, where you have a lot of SPACs and, and new currencies that are sort of popping up here and there. Um, I think as more as the government sort of brings in more liquidity in the market, you're going to see that start to disappear to a certain extent. Um, and that in and of itself starts to normalize the industry a little bit more too, because it starts to look more like the real world. Um, and that will be, um, I think, both from an investment standpoint for legitimate investors uh, and, and for legitimate banks and industry. Um, will serve this very well because it will start to make this look more like um, the economic model that we're we're used to here in the United States. Hey, and and one, one thing, Javier, just to bolt on, I'm going to give credit to uh, Tom Angel, uh, I think one of the better reporters in the, oh, in yeah, the industry at Marijuana Moment. He just uh, tweeted out a few minutes ago, safe banking was voted and attached to the America Competes Act. This is the sixth time it has passed the U.S. House of Representatives. So off to the uh, uncertain Senate. Your move, Chuck Schumer. Let's go. Big shout out to, to Tom. And well, thank you, everyone. This is all for today. Very, very interesting discussion. Very enlightening. And uh, again, Sarah, Tom, Brady, thank you so much for joining Benzinga Cannabis Insider. And we look forward to having you on again soon. Thank you, Javier. Thank you, Brady, Sarah. Great conversation. Great to be with you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.
Home. They say it's where the heart is. They also say it's wherever you make it. They don't say it's where you unload your stuff, get tired halfway through unpacking, use some boxes as furniture, realize your oven mitts in a box that doubles as a nightstand, don't want to buy a new nightstand, and use a towel as an oven mitt instead. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on renters and car insurance. Easier than grabbing a piping hot pan with a towel that's a bit too thin and trying to quickly get it to the counter. Ooh, hot, 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 hot. Yeah, I was a heavy drinker, but I didn't recognize what the people closest to me recognized. I ended up laying flatlined on a hospital operating table. Somehow the surgeons brought me back to life. When your life depends on it, there's only one place you can turn. Karen. A recent independent study showed that 94% of Karen patients were still in recovery 90 days post-treatment. Visit CARON.org slash real. Karen. Real results. Real care. Real about recovery. Introducing Under Armour's Infinity High Sports Bra. Its ergonomic design is molded to support the natural movement of your body. With cord-out padding, the better breathability eliminates extra bulk without sacrificing support. And quick-dry padding is Under Armour's fastest-drying padding yet. When you're lifting heavy, running fast, and pushing yourself further than ever before, you need a bra that will help you go that extra mile and make you feel your best. Shop the Infinity High Sports Bra now at UA.com. Jeep Freedom Days are here, where right now, well-qualified returning FCA lessees get a low-mileage lease on the 2022 Grand Cherokee WK Laredo E4x4 for $369 a month for 36 months with $3,799 due at signing. Tax title license extra. No security deposit required. Call 1-888-925-JEEP for details. Requires dealer contribution, a lease across or capital. Lessee is responsible for termination fees. Current lease must end by 7-3-23. Extra charge for miles over 30000 Residency restrictions apply. Take delivery by 7-5-22. Jeep is a registered trademark.